0: So I'm going to share with you a story that, uh, that uh, I have never shared publicly until this weekend. And um, so bear with me. I, I grew up in a very large church in the 70s and 80s. It was uh, large churches weren't a dime a dozen back then. And so in our town, our church was about 3,500 uh, people. And so it was very large. Uh, in 1992, I transferred from junior college and went to Arizona State. And so I moved about 1,700 miles away from home. Uh, to go to ASU. In the next two years, our church went through a church split. Now, uh, uh, my mom was not the cause, but she was kind of at the center of that because she was the senior pastor's admin. And so she was taking all the phone calls, because there was an email back then, it was actually literal phone calls uh, from people, angry on kind of both sides of that. Now, as someone who had grown up in that church, and you've probably heard me say this before, so thankful for that church and the foundation that they built into my life over the years, that was incredibly painful to watch from a distance and uh, to see my parents kind of be in the center of that and go through that. And it felt a little bit helpless 1,700 miles away. My parents ended up uh, retiring and moving out of the area, uh, and then in 1994, uh, Nicole and I were married, and I had been interning in a youth department in, uh, around Phoenix uh, for a few years and been going to seminary there. When uh, we decided, hey, <clears throat> uh, okay, so I was 24 when we decided to move back to my hometown. Yes, look, I had hair uh, back then, <laughs> so a uh, very uh, much younger uh, Tom and Nicole in, in that moment. So we moved back up to our hometown and I decided I would finish off seminary at Trinity Evangelical uh, in Deerfield, Illinois. Now, I had a position that set up at a well-known church uh, in the area that I was going to start in the fall when a family friend called and said, Would you consider uh, running the high school group at this church that had split off from... So the two had split and one had gone its separate ways and they, they're asking me to come be the high school pastor... Uh, intern, I guess, uh, with that church. Now, I knew most of the people there. Uh, if my parents had stayed in the the area, they probably would have landed at that uh, place and at that church. So I knew the families that were there. I knew the parents that were there. Uh, I knew most of the high school students, even though they were younger than me. And so from their perspective, I was known and I was trusted, which they they felt good about, Uh, And so I took the job and with little to do with me, uh, we had incredible success. Uh, We saw the high school group double and then we saw it double again. Uh, We saw the students kind of become the backbone of the volunteer base. We were uh, running church out of a high school, so if you've done that in the past, you know what that means. You show up early, you set up everything, and then you stay late and tear down and make sure it's ready for high school uh, class on Monday. Our students, our high school students, were the ones who showed up early and the ones who stayed. Like, we were the power behind the volunteer force uh, in that. And it was going great. I was seeing kids grow. We were seeing kids change. We were having tremendous success, and it was awesome. But something just didn't seem right between me and my boss, who was the senior pastor at the time. I just from a 24-year-old's perspective or whatever, it just didn't seem like I could please him. Uh, it seemed like he had it out for me. Uh, nothing that I did felt good enough for him. And so uh, this was a part-time role, and as I finished seminary, uh, I told him I was going to interview for uh, some full-time jobs. And he said, great, we're, we're really not in the position to hire one, anyone full-time. But I knew behind the scenes that there were several families that had gone to him and said, listen, if you hire Tom full-time, we'll pay for it. So, but I'm going to leave that there. And, and, and I, I knew that kind of behind the scenes, and I thought, okay, great. We uh, sent out some resumes, and we had interviews at two different churches. One was on the coast in South Carolina, and one was in LA, two like, polar opposite kind of areas and, and places. And so uh, we, uh, we went to the South Carolina one to interview first. Now... I had grown up outside of Chicago. I had um, gone to school outside of Phoenix. I was used to big metroplex kind of areas. And so the senior pastor said, I don't think you're gonna like it there. It's like a vacation town you're going to. It shuts down half the year. Your wife's not gonna like that. She's used to the city, you know, all this stuff. So we went down, we had a great time. Now, if you've ever met Nicole, you know that her happy place is the beach. We're five minutes from the beach. Like our apartment would be five minutes from the beach. And, And so that was a huge draw for her. Uh, we loved the church, fell in love with the people there, and were like, wow, this is a great option. I came back, and he said, how did it go? And I said, great, and he said, how did your wife like it? And offhanded, tongue in cheek, totally not serious, said, well, she'll probably leave me if we don't move to the beach. He laughed, I laughed, we laughed together. We all knew that that was like, you know, I was not really meaning that she would actually leave me if we didn't move to the beach, right? So the next weekend, I go to the church in L.A., and we interview there. Same kind of experience. We had a great experience there. Loved it. I love the guy that I'd be working for. We just kind of, our hearts knit together right away. And as we're flying home, I told Nicole, I'm like, I don't know how to choose. Like, this is, these, these both these places are going to be great. So both churches called me up and said, hey, we want to offer you the job. And they said, we'll send you the offer letter. Now, okay, this is back when uh, it wasn't over email, they actually, you know, typed the thing up, printed it out, put it in an envelope, like three days later, four days later, you, you received it in your box and it was something of value. And then you called them on a phone attached to the wall, right, and said, hey, I got your offer letter, can we talk about this thing a little bit? It wasn't instantaneous like we have now. So the offer letter from South Carolina came and the one from LA did not come, and then it didn't come the next day and the next day. And I'm thinking, man, L.A.'s postal service is horrible. So I get a call from the guy in L.A. And he said, uh, listen, uh, we want to send the offer letter. We have it written up. I, he goes, I just haven't sent it. We're, we're trying to work some things out here. There's this incredibly weird uh, rumor going on around here about you. I was like, oh. He goes, yeah. He goes, uh, like, I've met you, and I've met Nicole, and I know that there's no way this is true, but the rumor is, if you, don't move, if you move out here, your wife's going to leave you. <laughs> I was like, huh, ding, 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 ding. I know where that came from. Turns out, my, uh, my senior pastor at the time had a sister on the staff at the church in L.A. Right, right? You kind of figured this out. So uh, I get this phone call uh, back from my, my, the guy, the friend, and he said, uh, he said listen, uh, I'm going to send the offer, but as you're, as you're, I feel like our hearts kind of knit together and we've become friends. I'm just going to say this. Don't take it. Don't accept our offer. Uh, the, the, the board has told me to send it to you, but you're going to start like three or steps backward because we're, we're having a hard time c- controlling this thing. And he said, if you have another option, I would take it. He goes, also, friend to friend, take your senior pastor off of your reference list. I was like, whoa. So I went in to to talk to him, right, Uh, and uh, confront him. And we had a very spirited conversation. And in the conversation, what really came out from him was this. I don't like you. You weren't my choice. You were forced on me by the parents and the elders of this church, and I resent the relationships that you had with them already. I hate that you do things differently than I would have if I was running this youth group, and I hate that it's successful. Okay, so as a young 24-year-old in ministry, that shook me. Like that totally threw me back and rocked my world because uh, I wanted to quit. I sat with Nicole, I was like, this isn't worth it. Like, I don't, I don't want to do this. Is this what every church is going to be like? I, I was young enough to think, okay, we're all on the same team. We're all rowing in the same direction. You know, we're all serving the same Savior. I, I wasn't aware at the time that there can be little kingdoms that pop up inside of church. And I, was, I left that office as low as I could be, thinking, oh my goodness, do I wanna do this with the rest of my life? Now, let me ask you this question. Who in your life have you taken spear throws from? Someone in church leadership, perhaps, in the, in the past. A, a fellow believer who has wounded you with their comments. And it wasn't because of your sin. Uh, it, it just felt out of the blue. You had had success in their kingdom or around their kingdom. And it had taken away a little bit of their shine. You can't even explain why they treated you the way they treated you. And church, for you, became a really hard place to go. Our passage today has this incredible opportunity to be an encouragement to you. If that's you, if that's part of your story. Our account takes place in 1 Samuel chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Uh, But I just want to start our time off just by praying for our time in God's Word. So will you join me in that? Father God, I just... uh, I come before you, and I'm just so thankful that we got to sing your praises together. Uh, we got to be reminded about you're the one that fights our battles. Uh, we, we, we have we got to be reminded that you love us dearly and that you move on our behalf. And God, I recognize that in a room this size, there are plenty of us either on the receiving end of some spears recently or getting ready to throw. And so, Lord, I pray that as we study your word today, that you would uh, encourage our hearts, that you would challenge our hearts, that you would point out our wrong thinking, if there is some. Uh, But, Lord, that it would be an encouragement to us together. Speak through your word this morning. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. So, uh, verse 1, to understand the context walking into chapter 19, you really have to look at the last verse in chapter 18. It says this, "Uh, The commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success uh, than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Now, this verse sets up the envy and the bitterness that we're about to witness now in the next 10 verses. So verse 1, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. Saul's previous attempts to get rid of David had been a little bit more undercover, uh, a little bit more private or covert. But now this bitterness has built up so much so that he's ready to go public and get some other people involved in it. And so this bitterness now is driving him and it's David's success that he's like, hmm, I can't handle that. And so he decides to involve his son and his servants and he's gone public with his desire to kill David. There's a verse in Deuteronomy I believe twenty nine eighteen, and uh, it says this: Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God. This right here describes Saul's posture uh, to go and serve the other gods of the nations. Beware, lest they be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. This is where we find Saul in our passage. This is a spot on description of him. It's unjustified, it's undeserved bitterness towards David. I mean, think about it why does he want to kill David? What has David done? Well, he's served Saul, he's defended the kingdom. But Saul is turned away from the Lord, and so we noticed last week that he gets his value from somewhere else. And as a result, there is this development, this bitterness that has developed in his heart. He can't see straight. Uh, when David's successful, he can't control it. He can't promise it away. It's consumed him. Now before I go any further into this passage, let me ask you this question. Is there someone in this church or another church, a fellow Christian, a co-laborer, who when you see him or her, it just sends chills up your spine because of what they've said to you at some point? Like you see them in publics and, and you don't you know, yell at them, but you calmly remove yourself and you go, well, I'm, I'm gonna hang out in the frozen foods for a little bit till they pass away, or pass by, not away. <laughs> wow, that went really dark right, right away. You should probably post the first service online. That'd probably be better. But it causes you to walk in in another direction. The inside of your heart has this visceral reaction to them. You can almost taste the bitterness in your mouth as you're sitting there right now thinking about them. Okay, I want you to keep them in mind as we talk today. And as we look at this passage, and I want you to pray this simple prayer as I speak. Lord, help me to hear from you today. The the last time we saw Jonathan, uh, his response to David was amazing. He committed himself to David in this bond of friendship. Now that bond is about to be tested in a very real way. As Saul's hostility towards David had broken away from secrecy. And so the writer wants us to feel this tension as we read this passage and see this dilemma that is sitting there for Jonathan in the the middle of this. As it reminds us two times in this verse that he was Saul's son. We already know that. We've already been reading up to this point. Uh, The Israelites already knew that. But he is purposeful in reminding us again this is a dilemma here. Saul's bitterness puts Jonathan in a tight spot. There are two commands, uh, 10 commandments that kind of conflict for him here. One, honor your father and mother. And then, you know, a small one, don't commit murder. they are like two, and they're conflicting for him. What does he do? Uh, Jonathan understands that that Saul's request is not justified. Uh, It's not with righteous judgment. In fact, there's also irony here in this verse. Uh, Last week, we saw that King Saul sent a message to David, and he told his messengers, tell David, behold, the king has delight for you. But that was a lie. But for Jonathan, this statement, uh, he delighted much in David, was the truth. He loved him as his own soul. He had made a covenant with him. He had handed over his royal garments, his armor, his weapon. But here's the deal. Those who are bitter, they don't have any problem lying. It's not hard for them to lie. Verse two so Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. Now, Jonathan's relationship again to Saul is out in front here. Uh, The writer is making sure that we see it as Jonathan will now refer to Saul as my father three times over the next two verses. Everyone would expect Jonathan to act in accordance with his sonship to King Saul, even though Saul's the one creating the dilemma for him. Uh, Jonathan's father intends to kill the one that Jonathan was committed to. Verse three, and I will go and stand out beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. This is pretty interesting that Jonathan gave direction to David. He wanted him to make sure that uh, he was in full view, that the meeting was in full view, that nothing was hidden uh, from David, that he could totally see the body re- reaction and the body language. And even if he couldn't hear everything, Jonathan's like, listen, I want you to see that we're doing this meeting out in open, broad, broad daylight, but I'll fill you in on everything that was said so you know exactly what's going on, the care uh, and the dedication that Jonathan shows. And he just wants to be above board with these conversations. And so true to his word, Jonathan met with his father and he raises the difficult subject of Jonathan with him. Now you're going to notice that Jonathan really prepared for this conversation. He had thought through this whole conversation. He was persuasive, he was convincing, and he was powerful in it. In fact, read with me. It says this, verse 4 Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. Jonathan is incredibly persuasive as he makes his case before Saul with David hiding in the same field. He argues that David is innocent of any wrongdoing. In fact, David's actions have been of incredible benefit to Saul. He called what Saul was trying to do, sin. Now, if you've been following along in the narratives with us, you know that that word sin doesn't appear too often. We saw it once before with the prophet Samuel saying to Saul, hey, you are in sin. But here we have a son going to his father and going, hey, you are in sin. And so that must have stung a little bit. That must have been a little bit of a wake-up call when your son is the one confronting him. Verse 5, "'For he took his life in his hand, "'and he struck down the Philistines, "'and the Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel. "'You saw it and rejoiced. "'Why then will you sin against innocent blood "'by killing David without cause?' Literally, uh, the beginning of that verse is he put his life in his palm. It's a Hebrew idiom that means he risked his life for you and for Israel and for our kingdom by killing Goliath. Jonathan points to the, the significance to Saul and says, Listen, He didn't just do it. The Lord did it through him. The Lord met him there and gave him the victory. This wasn't just David doing it. This was God doing it through. You saw it. You rejoiced. You were excited. Now, you might not have loved the songs that came after it, but you sure were dancing when he went down. You saw it. The victory he handed to you. How good he made you look in that moment. But that joy for Saul was short-lived because bitterness and envy had taken root in his heart. Listen, when we live in bitterness, we are quick to discount the contributions of others oh, listen, they're having success because uh, all these factors went in their favor and they, you know, that, that, re- that wouldn't really normally happen. That's just kind of a surprise. And we kind of discount what they've done. Jonathan has described Saul's intended violence against David as sin against innocent blood, killing David without cause. This, this language here is incredibly loaded there's deep spiritual significance here. Uh, there had been special laws and provisions made in Israel to avoid the shedding of innocent blood. He's, so he's calling Saul back, hey, don't you remember in Deuteronomy? We're not supposed to do this. This isn't supposed to be us. Our kingdom's supposed to be different. In fact, when innocent blood is shed, uh, there is allowances for, to, to, uh, to uh, act back on that, to be um, retributive. Uh, to, uh, there is atonement that is required uh, in response to killing of innocent blood. He's like, you don't want that. And Saul didn't have any justification for what he was doing, for the violence that he had towards David. It is without cause, we're told. Now this passage gives us some insight on how to address a believer, fellow believer who's giving in to sin. Uh, if someone has given into sin because of bitterness, and, and you see this in their life, it's not, oh, hey, I know you're angry. I, I, I know they've disappointed you. I know your feelings are hurt with this, and I know you're just lashing out. No, man, it's, hey, this is sin. Th- this is wrong. Let's, let's look at this passage here. Let's, let's call back to what God's Word says. How you're acting towards that person is wrong. It's sin. Anger, bitterness, and hatred is sin. And he's asking, what are you allowing in your life? Don't you see where this goes? Jesus uh, talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But then he kind of expanded it. Because most of us can be like, oh, don't murder. Check. Right? But then he's like, hey, uh, I tell you, if you have hate in your heart towards another person, you've already done that. And you're like uncheck right because all of us have been there and we've already committed murder in a spiritual standpoint the attitudes of our hearts can become so dark and jaded without cause he's done nothing wrong to you your accusations are without cause but here's the thing in Saul's mind in Saul's mind he has total cause When we become envious and that turns to bitterness, we begin to justify our bitterness towards other people. And in our head, it makes sense. Like what we're doing, like, okay, so here's the deal. What they did is they saved all of Israel and they killed the giant, and so of course he must die. And you're like, what? To a common rational person, it sounds like lunacy. But because we've created these situations in our heart that don't make any sense to anyone else, This is what bitterness does to us. It clouds our view. It clouds our judgment. Uh, We become, Saul, in his mind, David is guilty. Yes, you killed the giant, but then people celebrated, and that made me look bad. So you're totally guilty. When we look at our life and the pain through sinful eyes of bitterness, we do not see things clearly. Saul is in a prison in his own mind and his thoughts towards David. But, verse 6, Saul, listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, we would say Saul promised, uh, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Saul is responsive to Jonathan's advice here. Uh, This promise that he swore would obviously, you know, would it last, like, could, can we close the book? Oh, good. He's not going to try and kill him again. This is perfect. He swore. He made a promise. He said he's not going to do that again. That's, that's great. But you know some of the rest of the story. You know he's going to try it again. And so it's not going to last long. But here, Jonathan intervenes to save David. But we're soon going to find out here in a verse, it's an empty promise. Listen. God isn't looking for you to change your heart. Let me say that again. God isn't looking for you to change your heart. Here's why. You can't. You can't. He's looking for you to give him your heart. He's looking for you to surrender your feelings to him. He, he's basically, Jesus is saying, listen, hand this to me. It's destroying you. You can promise all you want. You can say, no, listen, I'm not going to go there again. And you're going to go there again. I can tell you, and my family can testify this, I can tell you, this time I'm getting in the car, I'm not going to get angry at anybody. I'm going to drive fine. <laughs> and they're going to be like, uh, yeah, okay, sure thing. When we have bitterness, we need to hand our hearts to Jesus and say, listen, this is destroying me. It's ruining my relationships. It's clouding my perspectives. I no longer see those people as brothers or sisters in Christ. I see them as my competition. And I can't help these thoughts that I'm stuck in. I can't change these thoughts. I need to give it to you. You have to trust him with it each time as often as you need. And some of us are thinking, yeah, week by week. No, no, no. Not even day by day. For In the beginning of this thing, it is second by second. As that name comes up and we go, oh, I am ticked. Okay, Lord, uh, here it is again. I need to hand this to you, please. Can you change my heart? Can you allow me to put this down? Oh, Lord, it's me again. I know it's been three seconds, but... Uh, I'm here again. Can can I give this to you? Can you change my heart? And you're going to watch as God begins to do something on the inside of your heart and begins to change that. Lord, I'm, I'm believing these lies again. I need to hand this to you here. I can't believe I showed up in Publix and there he is again. I need to hand this to you. It's a moment by moment, day by day. I need to hand and surrender my heart to you again. And this is how we need to live. Because we understand that our hearts and it, filled with bitterness will destroy us. They will destroy us. Bitterness is not a fun place to be. So verse 7, Jonathan called David and reported to him all of these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul where he was in his presence as before. This is an incredible friendship moment that I want you to catch. He doesn't just tell him, hey, my father relented. I don't think he's going to try and kill you. Uh, you can go back in. He walks in with David into Saul's presence. He accompanies him into there. But then we get to verse 8. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Now, we're not told how much time passes between verse 7 and verse 8, whether it's a day, whether it's a month, whether it's a a year, whatever. But eventually, we know this in reading the Old Testament the Philistines are going to do what Philistines do. They're going to create war between Israel, and David's going to do what David does. He thrashes them. It happens all the time as we walk through this passage. That means that David once again is propelled into the national national attention and praise. And as before, his victories reignite these songs, which reignite this envy, uh, which reignites this bitterness in Saul. Why? Because he hasn't dealt with the root of the problem. Do you understand how fruitless it is to make promises you can't keep? Making promises with things that he has no control over? Making promises that he cannot keep because bitterness is about to flare again. You can't promise. You can't do it. You can't change your own heart. You will fail and lose when we live in our own power. When we think we can change it on our own. Have you ever heard a fellow believer or have you ever said yourself, "Uh, I'm really working on this area of my life? Yes? Can I give you some advice? Stop. You're like, wait, hold on, what? Stop. It's actually not about your effort. It's about your surrender. This isn't conquered with our will. This isn't conquered with our talent. This isn't conquered with our creativity. This isn't conquered by us. It's conquered by surrendering our heart to Jesus and allowing him to work through us. I don't have a three-step outline this morning on how to control bitterness. It's one You give your heart back to Jesus and you say, listen, I can't do this on my own. I need you to do it through me. Surrender day by day, minute by minute. Rely on his power. Let him do the work that only he can do to renew your heart. One more thing. Until that change happens in your heart, until God fully restores and renews you, Never hold a spear with bitterness in your heart. Never hold a spear with bitterness in your heart because the only thing you're going to cause is destruction. In your life and in your relationships, you're going to harm others. You're going to harm God's people. Verse 9, Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, Oof. And David was playing the lyre. Now you remember uh, back in 1 Samuel 16 when Mark talked about the evil spirit that came on Saul and tormented him. This was a consequence of the spirit of the Lord departing from him. Uh, this evil spirit was an aspect of God's judgment and rejection of Saul for his disobedience. Put it kind of plainly, he gave Saul what Saul desired. He didn't want the Lord and so God's like, okay, now, I'm sure people were singing the songs for David, but where do we find David? We find him serving again. He, he's sitting here serving Saul, to soothe Saul. All right, what do we do if other people are pointing spears in our general direction and getting ready to throw them at us? Can I give you two pieces of advice just from these verses? The first one is this, learn how to duck and run. Well, learn how to duck and run. And I know that sounds easier than it is, but learn how to duck and run. Uh, Verse 10, Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul. And so that he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. Now we know the motivation that drove Saul was not rational. He couldn't deny the goodness of David that was set before him. And nevertheless, it was David's goodness and David's victories that ignited this, this bitterness in Saul's heart. And so here, he, here David is serving him, and David has to dodge the spear and run away. Okay, but what do we know about David? What were these songs that they were singing about him? David has killed his ten thousands. That means David's a pretty good warrior, Right? I'm guessing somewhere along the line he knows what to do with a spear. Like he's had some practice on the field with a spear. He's probably pretty good at it. The slingshot isn't his only weapon. Don't you think? We could, that'd be safe to assume. But notice, it doesn't tell us that he picked up the spear and threw it back. So don't pick up the spear and throw it back. Uh, Jesus tells us that we are to love one another, us in the body of Christ. And yet sometimes we're not very lovable because we throw spears at each other. He said this, You'll know that you're, they'll know that you're my disciples by the way in which you love one another. In other words, our identity is recognizable to others by the way in which we practices what way in which we love each other this is an overflow of our hearts towards each other now i am not going to ask you who's been hurt by someone in the church to raise your hand i'm not going to please don't do that that'd be embarrassing for all of us because what you will find if i asked you to do that you would look around and you would go oh i'm not the only one this has happened to others So, what do you do when someone in the church hurts you? How do you get free? How do you protect your own heart? Uh, Jesus tells us uh, we are to love our enemies. We're to pray for those that persecute us. And so start praying for them. It might start off a little bit sterile at first. Uh, Dear Lord, um, thanks for uh, praying for Jim. Uh, That's all I got right this second. Uh, but it might uh, eventually, right, as you're handing your heart over to him, uh, he would change that for you. Until that prayer becomes something from the heart. And it becomes really hard to hate them. And nothing kills the bitter root quicker than aligning with Jesus and his desire for others. And so pray God's blessing on them. Let me go back to that story in the beginning. I left that office ticked off. And I thought to myself, you know what? I know all these elders. I mowed their lawns when I was a kid. They love me. I'm going to call them up. How could he treat me like that? Got back to my house, and and, uh, in my heart it just said this, give your mom a call my mom had gone through the war two years earlier and gone through some of the destruction that can be created in church by spear throwing. And so she said this, I'll never forget. She said, Tom, don't cause chaos in God's kingdom. I was like, "Ooh, don't cause chaos in God's kingdom. Okay, if I'm completely honest... That's not the word I wanted. That's not the advice. In fact, I hung up the phone and I called a mentor, hoping for something different from this person, right? And I'm like, hey, you're not gonna believe this. Like, what would you do? And my friend, he said, listen, Tom, I, I want you to read this book. And I go, no, 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 no. I wanna know who to call. I don't want a homework assignment. I wanna know where do I point my spear? I don't want a reading assignment. He said, Tom, seriously, this book will take you less than an hour to read. He said it's called The Tale of Three Kings It's by a guy named Gene Edwards. And it looks at the story of Saul and his, or David and his relationships to Saul and then his relationship to Absalom. And it asks the question in the first half of the book, what do you do when God's anointed throws spears in your general direction? He makes this profound statement in the book that just hit me like a ton of bricks at the time. He says, God allows souls in our lives to, to remove the souls that are inside of us. Hear that again. God allows the souls in our lives so that he can remove the souls that are inside of us. Uh, I know this. That experience changed me. It caused me to look at the world and the church a little bit differently. Uh, It caused me to change how I uh, want to lead and how I work with others. It changed me. I remember uh, I took that job in South Carolina. We went there for three years. It was such a time of healing. And uh, towards the end of that time, I thought I was over this whole thing. I got a letter from that church and I opened it up and um, there in the bottom is a signature from this pastor and uh, he's asking for money. He's he's, he's writing everyone that used to be a part of this church, we got this great project, we're putting uh, this sign on the road and would you consider donating? And I was like, ain't no way. Right? Like, that's not going to happen. And I remember praying. I'm like, God, I can't believe that you're blessing that place. Like, I want to see that place fail. I I don't want to see that place do well. And he's like, I'm sorry, did you say you don't want to see my church do well? You know what I mean. Right? I don't want him to do well, but I want your church to do well. And he said, hey, just start praying for this guy. Pray for this church. Stuck that little letter up on my desk Took it down a couple times, because I'm like, I I don't want to read this right now. Start praying for that church. Start praying for that man. At this point in my life, I can tell you, and I couldn't tell you back then, but I can tell you this. I'm so thankful for that experience. That sounds crazy, I know. If you're in the middle of getting spears thrown at you, you're like, I'm sorry, you're what? No, I am so thankful For that experience, because God used that experience to change me. I am not perfect, and I'm not claiming to be. I've thrown my fair share of spears over the years, right? As I'm sure we all have. But I try to lead differently with that in mind. I try to interact with people differently. Like I don't want to be the spear thrower. I don't know if today finds you ducking spears or throwing spears. But I want to close our service, my time in our service, praying for you. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me? Father God, I want to lift up my brothers and sisters that are in this room. God, I know that uh, this conversation and this topic uh, boils some things up to the surface. And Lord, I know that some of us are just struggling with bitterness towards the success of someone else. And we have a spear in our hand and we can't wait to throw it up on Facebook. God, would you speak to us in this moment? Would you encourage their heart? And say, just set it down. Give your heart to me in this one let me fight your battle in this one God I know in a room this size there are plenty of us that are ducking spears right now and we feel pretty alone God could you in this moment encourage us Breathe some life into our hearts. Let us know that you are walking with us and that you're going to take care of us. And we don't have to pick up a spear. Lord, may we be a body of believers that live out your word in your power. May we be a body of believers. does not throw spears at each other. Help us, Lord. It is in your precious and your holy name that we pray these things. Amen.